You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Mark Lipsitch, professor of epidemiology and director of the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. This call was recorded at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday, July 1st. Dr. Lipsitch, do you have any opening comments? Uh, sure. Thanks, everyone, for joining. Uh, I look forward to talking about whatever is on people's minds. I think there's a fair amount of news today. Uh, everyone's aware Tony Fauci described the possibility of 100,000 new cases per day as a uh, potential future for our country, and I'm afraid that seems reasonably likely to me on, on current trajectories. Um, uh, also this morning, the a group of uh, institutions, including the Rockefeller Foundation and the Safra Center at Harvard and Harvard Global Health Institute and others uh, released what I think is a, a very useful set of um, guidelines for uh, cities and, and other jurisdictions to um, understand what's needed for uh, control and uh, for contact tracing and other aspects of control. Um, uh, I put the link in the chat. Uh, I have perhaps a slightly different and less optimistic perspective about uh, contact tracing than, than that report. But on the other hand, if you read that report carefully, it suggests that the intensity and uh, success of the the, the, the success, the metrics that the effort would need to meet are rather um, stringent. And so if indeed a, a contact tracing effort could meet those, those metrics, then I think it would really be uh, quite different from what's been seemed possible so far in the United States. So uh, happy to talk about that further. Um, and then another topic that I would be happy to discuss, I think the, um, the this question of how uh, vaccines are gonna be distributed when they're, if and when they're available uh, around the world is one that has been worrying me and I don't have a lot of solutions, but I think uh, the, that's a topic that probably needs more coverage, so. I'll stop with those very general comments and uh, start taking questions. Thank you, Dr. Lipsitch. All right, uh, first question. Hi, thanks for doing this. Um, with the 4th of July this weekend, I just wanted to ask, are you concerned that we will see a surge in cases linked to the holiday like we saw after Memorial Day weekend? I think it's possible. I think uh, as with, um, with any single uh, point in time, it's difficult to attribute a surge to, to one activity. Um, uh, but I, and, and I imagine that a lot of the work, a lot of the activities over the holiday will be out of doors, uh, which as we're increasingly beginning to find is a safer place to do almost everything. Um, but Yes, I think I think there's both a, a continuing trend of reopening, although being tempered in a few places, uh, and that the holiday itself will bring more people together and um, and 
probably add to transmission, particularly given that we have really active epidemics going on in so many states. Next question. Yeah, hello. Um, hello, doctor. Um, my question regarding the, the virus mutation possibility in the winter and whether we may have new strain more deadly in the coming few months. Um, sure. Uh, so I think we have to have to make some distinctions here and I refer you to uh, a blog post that my colleagues at the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics put up. I'll try to put that in the chat if I can uh, after I finish answering um, about mutation and what it means. So the virus is mutating. All RNA viruses, all viruses, and especially RNA viruses mutate. Um, that means genetic change, but it doesn't necessarily mean uh, a change in its properties biologically. So we can observe it, but we, it doesn't necessarily mean something good or bad for us. Um, there's always the possibility of a virus having a mutation that changes its biological properties and then whether that becomes more common or just uh, becomes a dead end uh, and that strain tends to, uh, tends to not take off, that depends on whether uh, it gets into a population that's doing a lot of transmitting. So it depends on the luck of that strain. And it also depends on the fitness of that strain, meaning whether that change is making it transmit more effectively and more efficiently. Um, and people sometimes equate being more deadly with being more transmissible, but that's not always true. It can be true, but it can be the opposite or it can be unrelated. So I think we have a big problem now uh, we need to be monitoring and and considering plans for a for a worse strain. But I think, uh, yeah. at least in many parts of the world, we're doing a sufficiently bad job of dealing with the strain that we have now. That that our focus should be on on that uh, at the moment. Um, sometimes people draw parallels to the 1918 influenza, um, which was milder in the first wave in the in the spring of 1918 uh, and more seemed to be more deadly uh, in the fall and winter. Whether that was a change in the virus or whether that was a change in the populations it was infecting or other other things that were happening like other secondary infections, nobody has really nailed down. Um, and that's one of the great mysteries of epidemiology history that we would all like to solve someday. But, um, but that precedent is in people's minds. It's an important thing to keep in mind. But I think at the moment, uh, we have a really big problem and, and uh, we need to deal with that problem. And, and uh, the, the expression dead viruses don't mutate is an important one. The less virus we have in the world, the fewer cases we have, the better the chance that it stays similar to what it was uh, rather than getting more severe. So, so controlling this virus is really where our priorities should be. Yeah, um, um, regarding, if there is a certain mechanism or protocol we can expect in distributing the vaccine and who can get it first as it's the main issue in the world now? Uh, so, so, sorry, I'm not sure what the quest, what's the question. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about uh, if there is any mechanism or protocol we can expect in distributing the, any prospect uh, or um, vaccine uh, and who can get it first. Yeah, so I think there is very hard work going on with um, a coalition of the World Health Organization and uh, Gavi, the vaccine uh, Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations, um, and uh, and CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. The th three of them are working very hard together to design mechanisms by which uh, vaccines would be available in a fair and equitable way across the world. Um, counter to that, I fear, is that uh, individual governments are worrying uh, about or are trying to define ways that they can uh, increase their own access at the expense of the world. And I think this is a potentially a major um, source of geopolitical tension if in fact there is a vaccine that is available in limited supply and the powerful countries and or the countries that develop it uh, find ways to sequester much of that supply. Um, so I think that's a, an issue that's not receiving enough attention. Uh, I don't know what, that there's a clear solution, um, but we need, to, uh, we need to be at least aware of it and try to find ways to uh, address it because I don't think it's being fully addressed at the moment. Thank you. Next question. Thanks, Professor, for taking the time. Uh, so Dr. Fauci said there'll be uh, 100,000 cases a day, potentially. What will America be? Sorry, you faded out. But... When that happens, will there be overloaded hospitals, people dying? Will that overload our health system and create a nightmare scenario? Could you hear that? Uh, sort of, I, but since you emailed me <laughs> earlier, I know, okay, I know sure. roughly what you're asking. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, so I think the, that the most likely scenario for that is that it will be quite variable regionally and that we won't necessarily see every place uh, struggling, but we will see some places struggling. Um, and that would... Yeah, and it seems most likely to me that there will be parts of the country uh, where the healthcare system will be overwhelmed with that kind of level. Certainly, uh, you know, if parts of Texas uh, went to two and a half times their current uh, caseload, that would be disastrous because uh, the current is about 40,000 cases a day, I think, in the U.S. So. Um, so there will be some places that will really struggle. And my guess is that those will be different from the ones that struggled the first time because uh, people seem to learn lessons very locally. Um, and I think uh, at least some of the jurisdictions that have, were hardest hit um, in the first round are being much more cautious at this point. But, uh, but that, that would, I think, lead to widespread school closures. I think it would like 
if they're if they're already if they've been open. I think it would um, it would be a more generalized version of what New York City was experiencing uh, a few months ago. Do you have a follow up? Uh, just uh, when you say more generalized experience, to me, you know, a, a wider spread. Uh, yeah, I a mean, bigger scale disaster I mean, than New York. I mean, geographically more widespread. Okay. Um, yeah. Thank you very much. I put in the chat the um, the link to the blog post on mutation uh, from our center, and also um, before that, I put uh, an op-ed that I thought was really uh, well written by. Uh, Helen Jenkins from Boston University and Bill Hannage uh, from our center. They are married to each other and it was in the Washington Post this morning about uh, the sort of trade-offs around if we want to reopen schools, what needs to be done in the meanwhile. Thank you. Uh, next question. Thank you. Dr. Lipstitch, I, I have a question. I have two questions, actually. One of, uh, if we look at the statistics, the numbers of cases in some places are going up, but then the, at the same time, the death numbers are going down. So what can that mean? Can that mean that uh, the virus is getting weaker or it's just, uh, I don't know, like, can you explain why is that? Yeah, thanks for that question. I think there's really no evidence that the that the virus itself is changing in a biologically meaningful way. There have been some false alarms about that. It's it's not that it's impossible. We still need to monitor for that, but but the evidence of that is, in my opinion, so far non-existent. Um, the we've understood for a while that deaths are a trailing indicator of cases, and uh, that's because it takes a long time for people to die relative to when they got infected. Mm -hmm. um, and if you look at states like Georgia or Texas, the big increases in cases started about two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the sort of rule of thumb for, for cases to deaths is probably three weeks. Uh, depending on how long it takes to confirm cases. So it's maybe three to four weeks from infection to death if you, among those who die and, um, and confirmation of the case is somewhere along that trajectory. So if, uh, if that's the case, then we would expect to see increases uh, starting uh, in a, about a week or so. But, uh, I think the other thing to say is that this is such a localized ep epidemic that when you have different curves on top of each other and we just add them together, uh, you can get periods where curves are out of sync. Um, so if, if deaths still haven't increased in a, a couple of weeks, then we will really have to try to understand what's going on. But I think uh, at least for some of the main states that are really going up fast uh, in terms of cases, it's a bit early. Um, the other thing to say is it it may well be, uh, and I don't have any data, this would be a useful thing to try to, to work out, it may well be that as healthcare professionals are learning how to treat this illness better, uh, that a smaller proportion are dying. I haven't seen the evidence of that, but uh, I think that's a serious hypothesis that needs to be tested. Mm -hmm. 
And another question is about, uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, about uh, Dr. Fauci testimony in the Congress. So what could be the outcome of that testimony? In uh, Because he did mention that the possibility of ne necessity of second lockdown. Do, do you see that in future in America? I think, I think it, at the rate things are going, it's going to be necessary in some places. Um, uh, I hope not in all places. Um, and I think, you know, it, is gratifying to live in a state that seems to be both doing things very carefully and slowly uh, to reopen and seems to be uh, doing so successfully in terms of our case numbers and, and death numbers. Um, so I, I hope that, for example, Massachusetts is not a place where that will happen. But, um, but I think when a city or a state experience a really intense surge, unfortunately, uh, it may take that before uh, controls are reimposed. It would be much more efficient to reimpose those controls, perhaps not as intensely right now, uh, but, but uh, that's not happening on a large scale. Mm -hmm. Can I ask one more question uh, about uh, just uh, America is leading in the cases comparing to other countries? Uh, I know that, you know, uh, Russian, uh, Russia probably not given uh, all the information like China, but why do you think America is like the largest economy, one of the best medicine in the world, but still uh, we have here, we see more cases here? Um, Dr. Michael Ryan from the World Health Organization stated this morning, uh, I think it was this morning in a virtual meeting that I uh, read about on Twitter, but at least in the last 24 hours, he stated that uh, countries with um, strong um, federal governments or national governments that, uh, let me see if I can get his quote uh, correct, something about that uh, Let's see, countries with governments that communicate complex science directly to the public and use science as the basic control have had much better success in fighting COVID-19. Mm. And uh, I think you can see that borne out both in the comparison of the US to some as a whole to many other countries like most of East Asia and most of Europe, um, that at the federal national level, we have uh, been obfuscating the problem for, we obfuscated the problem for a long time um, we've had inconsistent messaging and sidelining of the scientific parts of the federal government in favor of the politicians uh, speaking uh, non-science and, and often incorrect information. Um, and uh, I think we're seeing that. And I think also the within-country comparisons in the U.S. show that, that the, um, that the states that have taken this seriously um, and and followed the science while trying to protect the economy. Following the science doesn't mean lock it down and never let up. Following the science means uh, communicating clearly and, and doing those things which are scientifically believed or known to be effective. Uh, those states are doing on the whole much better than states that are following the national lead. Thank you so much. Next question. 
I was just interested to hear um, what your concerns are about distribution. Uh, if it was what you just said uh, earlier or, uh, or if you have other, about equity or if you have others as well. Yeah, I think, uh, I think there's a, a real concern about equity and that, uh, and that in addition, it will further fray international relations, which are already uh, in many cases quite frayed if uh, even among countries that are, you know, where there's not an equity issue, um, if certain countries try to sequester vaccine doses uh, for their populations. I mean, I think, I think the solutions to that include internationalizing production capacity. And I know that's one of the strategies that's being pursued uh, so that so that the vaccines are not physically in all in one country. This assumes that there's at least one vaccine and ideally many vaccines that are effective. Um, so I think that's one alternative, one approach. I think another approach is trying to get countries to buy into a plan uh, before anyone knows which vaccines uh, are effective, so that we're not. Uh, so that, you know, in the same way that you buy insurance before you know whether your house is burned down, uh, you buy you buy into a plan for distribution before you know whether you have the uh, all the chips or you don't have all the chips. Um, I think that's another part of it. Um, and this is not really my area of expertise, but it's an area where I'm really concerned because I think uh, um, vaccines are... A, very valuable, com will be a very valuable commodity. And do you think that, or could you, could you play out a little bit what the consequences would be if one country does uh, end up with a lion's share of vaccines? Uh, I mean, I, again, I, I think it's not my area of expertise. I really was suggesting to get it on your collective radar screens rather than that I have tremendous insight into the details, but I think there's a lot of, a uh, lot of opportunity for mischief. Great. Thank you. Next question. Hi, thanks. Thanks for doing this. Um, I wanted to, to follow up on schools. Um, I saw the, the op-ed you uh, mentioned as well, but I guess, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, well, schools depend on how bad the virus is in that area. I wonder if you could expand on that. Like how do you have say a medium amount of virus circulating in that area? I mean, should you still have in-person um, schools, you know, or, or how, how bad does the outbreak need to be that we would in an area that we would not want to have in-person uh, schools? Uh, I think that's a good question. Um, clearly if the rest of the economy is, is, shut down because of stay-at-home orders, then schools uh, probably should follow that. Uh, the, I think there's enormous value and the American Academy of Pediatrics has written about, about this. Um, uh, there's enormous amount of value to having schools open, not only for education, uh, but also for, um, for uh, medical care, uh, speech and occupational therapy, um, uh, food, 
distribution. I mean, they really are, uh, unfortunately, um, what's left of our social safety net is m much of it is is tied to schools now. Um, and we uh, having them closed is a is not something anybody should be in favor of. Um, uh, I think every state is trying to figure out the plans for for where for how to respond to um, or how to deal with schools. I think most states are planning to reopen as best I understand in in August or September when their normal calendar is. Um, and I think my guess is that there will be a lot of experience, you know, a lot of lessons learned in the first few weeks of that. Um, I think we still don't have a large scale sense of what role schools will play in transmission um, and that we can make rules or, or principles now, but, um, but I think we will end up changing them once we see a little bit what role schools are playing. Um, uh, and I know states, including Massachusetts, are very rapidly trying to develop guidance, but I don't have a good answer for you right now. I just, I, I agree very much with the general view of the, of the op-ed that my colleagues wrote that, um, that schools will be more sustainable in an environment of more limited transmission and exactly where the cutoff is, I don't, I can't tell you at this point. Got it, thanks, that helps, that's good with me. Great, next question. Can you go through the measures that you think the federal government should take now to reverse the current trend? Um, I think that uh, it's, it's hard to know where to start. Um, in terms of strategy and message, I think that the, uh, the CDC and the other public health experts within the government need to be on the front lines talking to the country every day um, and talking science and what we know and what we don't the way they did in 2009 uh, during the flu pandemic and that, uh, that people without scientific qualifications obviously have decision-making authority and have lots of, of uh, role in this, but do not need to be uh, stealing the show uh, in terms of public communication. Um, so I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is that uh, the, and, and that needs to be sort of un, unmuzzled. <laughs> uh, I was delighted to see Ann Shuchet's name in the news for the first time in a month or so, uh, who, was, who was the voice of CDC in 2009 for much of the flu pandemic uh, and has been quite absent. So I think maybe there's some loosening there, I don't know. Um, in terms of more concrete measures, I think uh, real consistent messaging about the importance of masks um, and, uh, and encouragement of of requirements for masks uh, in those places where they aren't required at the moment. Um, I think uh, support for really larger, even larger scale testing in order to uh, try to reopen schools. I think uh, um, 
that will be an important piece of the of the reopening and and still uh, the federal role has been mixed of a mixed one at best in terms of uh, availability of testing um, uh, and I think also more federal leadership on all the issues around uh, making it possible for people to uh, survive economically as we have more uh, economic disruptions. Um, and that includes um, uh, proper policies to let people um, to let people uh, stay home from work if they're sick uh, and not suffer economically, which I think is still a, a at best a patchwork in this country um, and other economic measures that, that can be taken. Um, uh, and then, uh, well, so I think those are, those are, those would be good starting points. Um, and uh, many things will follow from that, from having the public health authorities uh, in a position of leadership. Thank you. Uh, next question. Great. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, I wanted to go back to the the messaging point you were you were discussing earlier, and ask what you think specifically the federal government uh, needs to do to sort of help us dig out of the hole we're in in the southeast and the southwest. What what should they be saying at, at this point? What are what are the crucial messages? Um, I think uh, it's a lot of what I s just said, but also, I mean, I think in at least the Southeast, which I've been watching a little bit more because I used to live there, um, uh, the reopening has been rapid and really not very tied to uh, positive beneficial trends in the epidemic or tied to sort of economic necessity. Um, uh, and so I think the federal government needs to make it clear that if cases get above a certain level uh, and if the trend is negative, then the, uh, it's harmful, you know, it's, it's positive in cases, uh, that, that further retreats from the opening and, and, and moving back towards being closed down are going to have to happen, um, and that if the federal government isn't saying that, and they quite distinctly never said how you would retreat from from the reopening, they only just made a they only suggested a plan for reopening. Um, if the federal government isn't pushing that, then uh, the the people who are politically allied with our president, like the governor of Georgia and the governor of Texas, are going to be uh, even more inclined to just keep keep the trajectory um, of reopening. So I think the, if the federal government isn't saying clearly we have a common uh, common interest in keeping this virus under control, which will help our economy and will help our health uh, and will get us to a point where we can function again, um, then then we can't expect states. We, we can hope, but we can't, empirically, we can't expect states to uh, behave in that way. So the, 
we just need federal leadership of of the sort that we're having from states like New York and Massachusetts uh, to say we're we're taking this seriously and we're reopening only when we see continuing beneficial trends. You, you mentioned uh, how important it was to put people with scientific qualifications at the forefront of the messaging. Um, does, given what we know and how we've seen pol uh, the politicization of things like even masks, does the CDC or Shukat or, or Fauci screaming from the rooftops matter if the president every now and then tweets something different? Um, I think if the, if the, I mean, I'm, I'm encouraged to see that, for example, Republican senators are now sort of falling in line with the notion of masks uh, and helping to depoliticize that. That's a, one of the nicest developments uh, I've seen in a while. Um, I think the president uh, has a unique ability to derail good policy uh, in this country, this president. And um, uh, it, you're right, it could be that uh, that won't, that, that that will preclude scientific leadership from, from getting its message through. But at the moment, we don't know because they've been so sidelined uh, and so absent from the public discussion and so much overshadowed by, uh, by the, the president and the vice president uh, dominating the media uh, on this topic. So I think uh, we got to give it a try. And yes, it won't be as good as if there was a, if there was presidential support, but it would be better than uh, not having the message out there at all. Thank you. Next question. Thanks very much for your time. My question is about containment. I'm starting to hear some communities say that they've contained the virus. So is there a standard definition of what containment means? Is it positive case rate or transmission rate, something else? Uh, I don't think there is a standard definition. Uh, which communities are you referring to? Um, Central Falls, Rhode Island. So a couple of real hotspots. Um, where uh, they were very densely packed uh, minority uh, predominant communities. That would be one of them. And then there are a few in, in Massachusetts that are making that claim as well. Yeah, uh, I don't think there's a technical definition of containment. Um, I yeah, and I guess I'd have to see what they're referring to to understand it better. I hadn't heard that. Well, when will you hear a lot of politicians and such say, you know, we're trying to contain the virus? What? How will we know when that's the case? <laughs> right. Um, well, I think the the broad goal is to bring the daily number of new cases of true new cases, which we get some picture of from the number of detected new cases, uh, on a downward trajectory to, and in particular on a downward trajectory to a point where. Um, where the medical care system is is very much able to deal with them, and the uh, public health system is able to uh, make a significant impact through contact tracing on uh, uh, on further reducing those numbers. Um, and I think the the one of the merits of the of the new um, it's not totally new, but the newly consensus recommendations from SAFRA Center and 
uh, Harvard Global Health Institute and Rockefeller and others is that they put numbers to that. So they say uh, sort of green zone of things are okay uh, is less than one detected case per 100,000 people per day, um, which is something I think I haven't checked, but I think there's probably no state that's at that point. Massachusetts is around two. We have, a, I think we had 114 cases, if I'm not mistaken, yesterday uh, in a population of 7 million. So that's about one and a half or almost two per 100,000. Um, so that's, uh, that's not far, but it's a little bit above. Um, much of Europe uh, didn't even begin reopening until they were under two per 100,000. Um, and uh, much of, uh, and you know, Korea began reopening when it was at about one per million, uh, or one tenth per hundred thousand. So, um, so that it's a bit arbitrary, but but uh, but I think one per hundred thousand per day is a kind of reasonable uh, estimate of what real containment means. Thank you very much. Next question. Good morning. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit, if you don't mind. There's been some research suggesting uh, aerosols disperse and present less risk outdoors than indoors, um, but it doesn't seem like there's a lot of research specifically on that. It makes obvious sense, but on a, let's say, a calm, <laughs> windless day, is outdoor spread risk really that much different from indoor if you assume equal physical distancing and other factors? Um, it's a good question. I think, I mean, the volume, I don't know enough physics of outdoor air mixing to give you a good answer, but my feeling is that it, that even though the movement of air may not be so great, uh, the, the volume of air that you have to disperse into is much greater than in a in a closed room, um, so I think uh, I think that's likely to be the case, but it's at the limit of my knowledge. Uh, quick follow, if if you don't mind, um, would you would you join friends for dinner at a a table outside in a restaurant uh, if all the other tables are six feet apart? Uh, yes, I have actually once. Um, uh, I don't think that's a riskless activity for, you know, for various reasons, but uh, the wait staff were masked. We were masked when we weren't eating. Um, and it was out of doors. Uh, and, and in fact, it was, it was with family. So, so not, and one friend that were, that's almost family. So, uh, so yes, I think at this stage in Massachusetts, this was in Western Massachusetts where there were very, very few cases. Uh, that seems completely reasonable to me. Uh, hey. if, if I were in Houston, Texas, I might not. You answered my last question. Thank you. Uh, next question. Uh, hi, Professor Lipsis, thank you for the time. Thank you for this interview. I'd like to, to ask you, what we are now seeing in the United States is actually 
a second wave erupting in the world from in the summer from the United States and we might see this spreading across the globe and also we learned uh, the other day about the new swine flu in China do you worry it might combine with COVID in the next months uh... Uh, I think that there's always that worry. Uh, I mean, there's, there's always a worry that something more could go wrong. Uh, and as I said with mutation, I sort of think uh, worrying right now, obviously there needs to be effort to understand and contain that virus if possible. Uh, my understanding is so far it has not made very many people sick. So that uh, that's somewhat encouraging, although not not the total answer but uh as i said before with the question of mutation i think we have a big problem on our hands and we should focus our resources on solving that problem uh while not ignoring the other ones uh right um, in terms of what the u.s is uh sharing with the rest of the world um uh i my sense is that travel has been reduced so much uh, from the U.S., especially now uh, with the with the new regulations from the EU, that um, that the U.S. as a source is not going to be uh, that significant to the rest of the world. But we will uh, we will have to see. So. As, as the virus seems so persistent, does this imply that borders will remain indefinitely closed and travel restricted for a long time? Well, I think we're sort of seeing this weakest link phenomenon that uh, that the places that that have the virus under control are having to close their borders to the places that don't. Um, I think. I mean, again, I'm not a political scientist or an international relations expert, but I do think there's a chance that we will see sort of, as we're seeing both at the country, at the multi, between countries level and the between states level, we're beginning to see sort of uh, groups of countries that say, you know, we all trust each other, but we don't trust uh, certain other countries to keep the virus under control. Uh, and so I think there will be regional coalitions of places that restrict travel from outside that region and and permit it within the region. Um, I think that's that may be sort of beginning to happen in the in the northeastern United States. Um, at least I've seen press reports suggesting that. So it's a it's a very weird situation with so much geographic heterogeneity. Right. But you hesitate to call it a second wave. Yeah, I mean, there, I, I think, I, as I've um, said to others, I think wave, wave is a term that we used a lot uh, during the first wave or, or that we used a lot in the past. Um, uh, I've tried recently to move away from it because I think wave gives this impression that that it goes up and then it comes down if you do nothing. Uh, and that's not really what happens with viruses unless you wait long enough so that herd immunity at a high level starts to kick in and then, and then it brings it down. Um, but we're not near there. So these waves, so-called waves, are not really waves. They're, they're sort of um, outbreaks that get quashed. 
or don't get quashed. Right. And um, so I think uh, I think I, I'm going to try not to use the term wave, but I think a second set of outbreaks in Europe and in other parts of the world, seeded by imports from the U.S. and from Brazil and from other hotspots, is certainly possible. But um, but uh, but again, it depends on the amount of control. And the other thing about waves is it's you know once they start, they're hard they're hard to stop the the increasing part. But in fact, we can stop countries can stop the increase by by uh, making sure that the imports are few and that the uh, that those that are imported are caught quickly. Right. Thank you, Professor Lipsis. Thank you very much. Sure. Uh, next question. Hi, thank you for taking the question. I'd love to circle back to masks, if you don't mind. I feel like the plea from public health officials has really increased in the last week or two on um, the importance of wearing a mask right up there with social distancing and hand washing. So I'm curious, is there anything we've learned that's new when it comes to the effectiveness of face coverings, especially um, you know, when worn collectively as a community, what they can really do here? Um, I think there have been some papers suggesting sort of quantitative estimates. Uh, I think I'm not aware, you know, it's a classic problem of, of you do six interventions at once to varying degrees and try to estimate which ones are important. Um, and I'm not, uh, I'm sort of a, one of those people who tends to not put a lot of faith in the precise quantitative estimates, but um, especially at the population level, but, uh, but to say that it's a low cost and likely effective um, approach to, to reducing transmission. But I, I haven't put a lot of stock in the specific estimates that people uh, have, have put out. Um, so I, yeah. I guess I'll leave it there. Thanks. Uh, next question, please go ahead. Hi, um, so I have a question about how childhood vaccine rates in the country have gone down due to fears of parents bringing in their children to the doctor's offices because of coronavirus. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about this or what you think about the impact could be. Yeah, um, I think I haven't seen the data, but I, I've heard the general issue raised. I think it, like any other cause of lower vaccination rates, it primes us for outbreaks um, of the other, of, of the vaccine preventable diseases. And uh, I think it is a concern. I think uh, primary care physicians and, and practices need to find some uh, ways to make sure that vaccination coverage is maintained, and if they can't do it, then public health departments. Uh, certainly, during the period of nice weather, you could imagine an outdoor vaccination clinic that was uh, that was one option. Um, but I haven't seen what the innovations in that space have been. It just seems like a, a real need. Okay, thank you. Next question. Uh, hi, um, thanks so much for doing this, uh, Professor Lipsich. Um, 
So uh, Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida has largely attributed the growing case numbers here to social behavior on the part of young people. Uh, he's argued while it's bad that young people are getting infected, it would be worse if the most vulnerable Floridians were to contract the disease, like people staying in long-term care facilities. So uh, in your view, to what extent is attributing that spread to younger people and arguing that those people are less likely to get the symptoms a sustainable virus uh, containment approach? Uh, I think it's, it's clear that it, when it spreads in one group, it spreads in many groups. And I mean, even in, in, case, in places that were really trying to reduce spread in all groups, like New York City at the height of its epidemic, uh, once it got into, it, it very effectively got into long-term care facilities. Uh, and Massachusetts had a similar experience, uh, not as bad as New York, I think. Um, so, uh, I mean, on one hand, uh, it just doesn't make sense to say, we'll just keep it out of the nursing homes because even with limited transmission in the, uh, more limited transmission in the rest of the population, uh, that doesn't seem to happen. Um, on the other hand, uh, that's a real dilemma. That presents a real dilemma because uh, we haven't found a really good way to protect the elderly, even and especially the institutionalized elderly, even uh, when when measures outside those contexts are are in place. So, um, I think it identifies a really important priority, but uh, but I don't think that we can just say. We'll let it spread in the in the younger people and and hope that we can keep the nursing homes safe because that has not worked so far. Gotcha. Um, and then follow up: um, Is there uh, to what what do you make of the argument that social behavior has more to do with the the spread of the virus than than business reopenings? Have you parsed the data? Uh, on that, like as far as, far as cell phone, you know, uh, usage uh, that tracks how far people have gone outside their homes. Is, is there is there a link between the reopening and the resurgence of these cases in in the South, and particularly in Florida, in your in your eyes? Uh, I have not tried to separate those out. Uh, I think next time my colleague Caroline Bucky is on one of these calls, you should ask her because that's an area that she works uh, more closely in. But. Uh, but I think the the age uh, the age association makes that more plausible. Um, but of course, those same people also have jobs, so I, and uh, and go to businesses uh, as consumers. So I think the age by itself doesn't prove it, but is consistent with it. Next question. Thank you. Um, I just had a question um, about your general thoughts on how the vaccine process is going so far. So are there particular candidates that you've seen preliminary data on that make you particularly hopeful? Or what does the data look to you? Is it is something that looks promising or not? What are the concerns that you have? Um, and then sort of in general, the safety issue at the end of the process, are we still going to know how safe it is uh, in terms of giving it to large numbers of people? Yeah, um, so I think the the first thing is I don't have privileged access to, to data from trials that, that haven't reported, but 
Um, but I think uh, this morning, I think it was this morning, the FDA released its guidance for clinical trials of uh, of these vaccines, which I thought was on a fairly quick read, very sensible um, and uh, addressed many of the concerns, addressed but didn't solve many of the concerns that people have had. One of those concerns is whether the vaccines are protective or are going to contribute to herd immunity by protecting people against infection or whether they will simply reduce uh, disease in those who become infected. Um, and there was a, a call for at least a secondary outcome in trials to, to test whether that's the case. Um, uh, the, the concerns that the main concerns that I have about the development process uh, separate beyond beyond the issues of, of distribution between countries that I mentioned earlier is our first that that trying to get that evidence about uh, effect on herd immunity and infection uh, is really important but but challenging to do in a good in a trial so I think we need to we need to focus efforts on figuring out how those that's going to be done uh, particularly in light of the animal data, limited animal data from um, from uh, from the Oxford vaccine that suggests um, that the effect is mainly on symptoms. I'm not sure that will be true in people, but but uh, it's a it's a live question and an important question to figure out. Um, another piece that was uh, mentioned in the FDA guidance was the need for at least what they called adequate numbers of elderly in the uh, in the clinical trials. Certainly, historically, many vaccines, uh, and in particular flu vaccines, have been less uh, immunogenic and less effective in the elderly than uh, in the rest of the population. And because the elderly are the most uh, affected by this virus in terms of the consequences, that obviously makes a huge difference um, into, as to how good a vaccine will be um, in terms of its impact on public health is whether it really works in the elderly, at least to protect them against disease. Um, in terms of safety, I think this vaccine will be like other vaccines that in the, um, in the initial safety trials will, will know, uh, about the possibility of events that happen in, in one in 10 or one in a hundred people. Uh, and in the in the after the phase three trials, if there are phase three trials done, we'll know about events about safety issues that affect one in a thousand or one in ten thousand people, sort of depending on the size of the trial. Um, uh, and so that's for something that's as uh, as severe and and threatening to the population as this virus. That's a Good margin of safety. Of course, we can't know uh, until the 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 rule of thumb is what's known as the rule of three. That if something, if you give a vaccine to X number of people, and you don't get a an adverse event of a certain type, then that means that the frequency is is very likely to be well below three divided by X. So if you give it to three thousand people, then you're pretty sure that it, the and it doesn't happen. Uh, then you're pretty sure that the frequency is less than one in a thousand. Um, so 
when we give it to 3 million people, then we'll be able to know about events that are as rare as one in a million uh, and so on. So, um, you know, I think, I think by the time there's been a phase three trial, if the safety looks good there, then that's a very, uh, that's very encouraging, but it doesn't, it, it can't exclude extremely rare events. But that's true of every vaccine. This concludes the July 1st press conference.